there isn't one strategy for saving democracy that I think everyone needs to get behind. When I'm helping advise a donor in that area or any other, I'm listening to what they care about, their views of the world, their ways of operating, their deepest values, their vision for the future. Those are the things that then help you advise folks sort of where to land within an issue area. Hello, this is the Great Battlefield Podcast. I'm Nathaniel G. Perlman. A great political battle is being fought right now between progressives and the forces of reaction on the other side. This show is about the political entrepreneurs and other progressive leaders who are finding new or improved ways to fight. My guest today is Mike Berkowitz, who's co-founder and principal at Third Plateau, which is a donor advisory firm. He leads his firm's democracy practice. Mike also serves as executive director of the Democracy Funders Network, a community for donors concerned about the health of American democracy, and is co-founder of Patriots and Pragmatists, a network and convening space for civic leaders and influencers to discuss and work on American democracy. Before Third Plateau, Mike was vice president at the Bonner Group, a nonprofit and democratic political fundraising firm. We had a good, wide-ranging conversation about his career, his organization, and the challenges we have to our political system. You should listen. So, after a quick word from my sponsor, my interview with Mike Berkowitz at Third Plateau. This episode is brought to you by Graphicacy. Graphicacy is an analytic design firm that can help you advance the mission of your organization using your own real data and information. They are 21st century visual communicators who create interactive graphics, motion graphics, and data visualizations. You can find Graphicacy at graphicacy.com. That is G-R-A-P-H-I-C-A-C-Y.com. With Graphicacy's help, you can visualize a better world. So, Mike, would you mind introducing yourself and giving me a quick biography? Absolutely. I'm Mike Berkowitz. I am co-founder and principal at Third Plateau, which is a social impact consulting firm. I do a lot of work in the democracy space right now. I advise a number of donors on their investments in the field. I organized and run a group called the Democracy Funders Network which is a cross-ideological learning and action community for donors concerned about the health of American democracy. And I'm co-founder of a group called Patriots and Pragmatists, which is a network and convening space for civic leaders and influencers across the political spectrum who have been meeting since 2017 to try to make sense of what is happening in American democracy and what to do about it. I think that puts you in a pretty interesting place in American life, in a crucial point in the history of our democracy. So I want to kind of go through your history a little bit and understand how you came to be there. Tell me about where you grew up and what kind of family and how you got going on your education. Sure. So I grew up in New York City, Upper West Side of Manhattan, in a Reformed Jewish family that was pretty committed to politics and activism and generally just 
doing good in the world. I spent a number of weekends throughout my high school years in D.C. lobbying on social justice issues through a program that was part of a group called the Religious Action Center for Reformed Judaism. And so really had a a sort of early training in caring about politics and policy and just the importance of being involved. Went to undergrad at Brown University, graduated in 2001, and did what I uh, still think was the right thing, but at the time thought was was the right thing for someone who wanted to get involved in changing the world. I moved to Washington, D.C. and got involved in, in public policy, first within a Jewish organization and then in democratic politics more broadly. Nowadays, when I hear from my older daughter about kids applying to college, Brown is like the hot place to go. I would never get in now, to be (laughs) clear. (laughs) It's got the prestige and it seems to have the, I don't know, the, the appeal in maybe being a fun place or a, or a free place. What was it like for you? Was it those sort of things? Yeah, I'm not exactly sure what drew me there. It was the one college that I visited that I just really liked. I thought it was physically beautiful. I loved the location. And there was certainly something, I assume this is still the case, about the open curriculum that really spoke to me. I was someone who didn't know really what I wanted to do with my life. I even say now that I didn't know what I wanted to do with my life until two or three years into founding the company that Mm I run. It took a while to, to figure that out. And I think the flexibility was very helpful. It's an interesting thing to look back on now, and this is certainly part of my political journey and my philosophy at the moment. I'm a lot more skeptical of some of the received wisdoms of this liberal tradition that, you know, I think Brown was a pretty strong example of. And so I I look back on it now with with more curiosity about it uh, than I might have had even at the time. You kind of modestly said you might not get in now, and I know that feeling, but uh, you graduated Phi Beta Kappa, which generally means you did exceedingly well there and and didn't have much difficulty. What did you study? I studied modern American history. Yeah. And was there a particular focus? Did you have like a senior thesis or some culminating project? No, I did well in school, but I uh, I was not someone who wanted to go above and beyond in terms of writing an honors thesis or anything along those lines. But, you know, for me, studying history and studying modern American history in particular was a bit of my way of getting my brain around politics and political science without all of the theory of political science. What I studied most in modern American history was not social or cultural history. It was political history. It was understanding sort of the big events, the major players in politics and policymaking. That makes sense. Um, And you said you came out, you worked for a Jewish organization. What was that one? It was called the Jewish Council for Public Affairs. It is an umbrella organization for the many Jewish community relations councils across the country, as well as a handful of the the biggest policy-oriented Jewish organizations in the country. For all of my interest in politics and interest in going to D.C., every summer when I was in college, I was not in D.C. doing internships. I wasn't working at 
uh, policy organizations. I was a counselor at Jewish summer camp. So my own entree into politics almost had to be through a Jewish organization that didn't mind that I hadn't done internships on the Hill. They were thrilled that I had been a Jewish summer camp counselor. That was how I sort of um, started to wrap my head around policy and politics in addition to a nice entree into all of that work. And you said you moved then into the democratic political world. Where did you go? Yeah, so I spent the 2002 cycle at a direct mail firm on Capitol Hill um, doing work for Iowa State House uh, candidates on the Democratic side of the aisle. So that was Mom and Richard and Associates. And I moved pretty quickly after that. That was always meant to be just a, a sort of one cycle job. And even though it's it's very interesting, I still look back on that. I think that was one of the best jobs that I have ever had because it was really a kind of creative job. I mean, you're trying to figure out what's the right messaging, what's the right strategy, but also how do we make something look nice? What's the visual strategy behind this? Uh, if you could put aside the fact that you were producing something that someone would look at for five seconds and then throw in the trash, it was really kind of a, a fulfilling job. I did that for the 2002 election cycle and then moved over to a Democratic and nonprofit fundraising firm where I was for about seven years. And that was the Bonner Group. Correct. Right. And what's interesting is a kind of an intersection between us in a slight way there in that I had built some fundraising software, which I sold to Democratic fundraising group firms, including Mary Pat Bonner, maybe for her, like around 99, 98, 99, that firm started using that. Tell me about your experience there at that firm. It was a real education. It was an education in politics. It was an education in fundraising. I started out there in, I think it was January 2003 as an assistant, and I left seven years later as a vice president of the company. And so it was an opportunity for incredible professional growth and learning Mary Pat, who uh, is, I think, just hands down the best fundraiser in the country. She was a tough person to work for, but also just an absolutely incredible person to work for. And I learned so much there. When I began there, the work was really focused around Democratic candidates. She had been Al Gore's fundraiser, and I was coming into the firm about a year or so, or a couple of years, I guess, after he you know, had lost the presidential election, but they were still doing a lot of fundraising for House candidates, for gubernatorial candidates. And that lasted up until about 2004. We were the national finance consultants on the Kerry campaign. And when, when Kerry lost, we were in Boston on election night in a room with a bunch of really big donors. And we looked at them and we looked at each other and said, we lost. And we have nothing to show for all of the money that all of these people so generously put into this effort. And it was after that moment that I really started thinking differently. And the Bonner Group sort of pivoted its work to really focus a lot more on progressive infrastructure, on organizations that no matter what happened in a political campaign or even a policy battle, were building power and infrastructure for the long term so that you'd have something to show for the work. Even if you lost the battle, you'd still be around to fight the war. It seemed like one of the things that developed was a pretty close partnership between 
Mary Pat, the Bonner Group, and David Brock, and the various organizations that he was starting, like Media Matters. You were watching that develop, it sounds like? Yeah, I left around the time that that really took off. We were doing work for Media Matters and a couple of organizations, Citizens for Responsibility and Ethics in Washington, an organization that became the American Independent News Network that actually ultimately are part of a a larger set of organizations that the Bonner Group, I believe, still fundraises for. But at the time, it was very nascent, sort of disparate organizations. And, you know, one of the reasons that I left that work, fundraising is hard work. It can be fulfilling. But for me at the time, it just felt like everyone wanted to go after the same donors. And it was just a really hard job with the proliferation of nonprofits in the progressive universe in in that era and a a donor base that at the time I think was still relatively modest, although I think fundraisers like Mary Pat have done a great job of expanding the universe for the last decade. Sounds like you would have gotten to know a number of those big donors you're referring to through that job. And that probably paid off later on with some of the work that you currently do. Is that true? And do you have any observations about the donors in the progressive universe? So I definitely got to know some of the donors. I mean, I was still young and early in my career, and so was still finding my way in that regard. The things that I learned were, first, it was very interesting to be in relationships with donors who really were not in the work for their own benefit. I'm much less of a partisan than I used to be, but I'll say when I see the sort of comparisons of donors, not necessarily just on left and right, I think there's plenty of donors on the right who also genuinely believe in the causes that they are for. There really is a difference between the donors on the left, who I got to know at least and and see and folks who have business interests in policy outcomes. The donors that I got to know were really genuinely selfless and generous people. Not to say they didn't have egos or interests, but they were in it for the right reasons. That was another thing that was very interesting coming out of working directly in politics and campaigns and moving into this universe of progressive nonprofits. You had much less of the transactional giving. It's the second thing that I would say is there was a real effort from 2005 onward through the creation of the Democracy Alliance and other donor networks to really try to harness the power of the many donors who are interested in progressive causes in the U.S. And that was hard. It was really, really hard to get all of those folks who viewed things sometimes through a generally similar philosophical lens, but whose particular approaches to what they cared about most, how they funded, et cetera, were quite disparate. It was, and I think continues to be very hard to, to create sort of sufficient strategic alignment across those folks. And, and that, you know, I think is not just true in that universe, but it's led to some of the ways in which I think about you know, what can and can't or should or shouldn't be done in philanthropy more broadly. I guess the last thing that I would just say is that I don't think anyone had or has all of the answers. 
to how to use philanthropic resources to create social change. And so what I found is I was quite drawn to the people who had a lot of humility around their giving, who might have had strong opinions about the causes that they supported, but who were open to expert opinion, who were open to different views, who were open to rethinking their strategies. Those wound up being the people that I was most drawn to in that universe. That makes sense. What was the Giving Circles fund that you were part of? Yeah. So I started an organization, and actually, we started it as the 1% Foundation. The idea uh, actually emerged from a conversation I was having with a friend. This is back in 2006. I was living in Los Angeles at the time. And we were talking about the generosity of the donors in the Democracy Alliance, not dissimilar from what I was just saying. And my friend asked me, well, how much are they giving relative to what they have or what they make? And I said, you know, I've not really thought about it. And then he looked at me and said, well, how much do you give away relative to what you make? And I said, I definitely haven't thought about that. And we each did a quick back of the envelope calculation and realized that we were each giving less than 1% of our income to charitable or philanthropic causes each year. And we started a conversation with some friends just to see what they were doing. None of us were making any real money, but... That didn't matter on a percentage basis. We were people who believed in trying to improve the world, and we believed in the idea of giving back. And so we started the 1% Foundation as a giving circle, a collective of young people in their 20s and 30s who were going to each commit to give at least 1% of their income to charitable causes every year and to pool a portion of that money together and create a collective grant-making process through which we would decide on areas that we were collectively interested in, and we would grant out more money together than any of us could do on our own. That was all before the Occupy Wall Street movement. After that movement, the idea of having something called the 1% Foundation was very off-putting. The number one question we got was, aren't all of the foundations for the 1%? We pivoted the name, but also in some ways the concept to actually be a platform for building multiple giving circles for people who wanted to have a learning process, but also the higher impact that comes from giving together. That makes sense. What's the founding story for Third Plateau? Yeah. So I had come out of fundraising, and one of the things that I saw in fundraising was when you're hired as a fundraising consultant by an organization, they really just want you to raise the money. And what, what I learned from that experience was you can't raise the money if you're not thinking more broadly than just who you're going after and how much you're going to ask for. You had to have a strategy for the organization. You had to have some proof of impact. You had to have strong executive leadership. You had to have a strong board. All of those things actually mattered when it came to fundraising. And so coming out of my time at the Bonner Group, I was quite clear, number one, that I didn't want to do fundraising anymore, but I believed that fundraising still mattered. Helping organizations grow their work had to involve those other elements alongside an appreciation for how to build a sustainable development operation. One of my other business partners 
was coming out of business school. He had been a direct service guy for a number of years, working for organizations that focused on homelessness and immigration and mental health. And he really came to feel like nonprofit organizations, at least the ones that he'd seen and been involved with, really had a lot to learn about how to operate functional institutions. And so he went to business school with a focus on social entrepreneurship and nonprofit management. And our third business partner had come out of social justice, advocacy, and activism, had gone to law school, decided he did not want to be a litigator. And the three of us got together and said, there are major problems facing the world. There are great people that are trying to build institutions to solve those problems. They need help. And they need help on how to operate better. They need help with all of the things that are going to enable them to raise money. And they also need help at the intersection of operating their organizations and having effective relationships with funders. And so here is the other piece of the founding story is especially having been a consultant to the Democracy Alliance, seeing these, you know, dozens of donors in the progressive universe who were trying to create strategy together and having all of the challenges with that, I felt that there was a lot that we could do advising donors on their philanthropic strategy and then working at the intersection in really careful ways because it can be very ethically challenging to work at that intersection if you don't have the right set of values and approaches But with the kind of ethic that we wanted to bring to the table, we felt there was a lot we could do actually to help organizations understand funders better and to help funders better understand how to think about their relationships and build strong relationships with donors. How did you know these two other co-founders? Jewish summer camp. (laughs) The secret. It's, Um, It's true. I kind of, I didn't attend any Jewish summer camps. I'm now starting to regret it. You did okay without it. I spent some very fine summers in Vermont on a farm, which was quite awesome. It's a long way from having an idea and two co-founders, however capable, to putting together an organization that, from what I can see from your website, has a culture, has clients and processes. Tell me about building that as an organization? What did it take? Finding clients, figuring out who you were, what services you're offering, all of those pieces. It's a great question. And it's not a coincidence that I said earlier that I didn't know what I wanted to do with my life until a couple of years into starting the company. My dad had two businesses that he ran when I was a kid. And I will say the idea of starting a business never appealed to me until I sat down with these two longtime friends and we identified the opportunities that we saw to be to be helpful, as I described earlier. What's interesting to me in the lesson that for the first six, seven years of the business was you can set out to do whatever you want. You can create all the plans, you can identify the market niche you're gonna go after, But when you want to start a business, particularly one that's a client service business, your business is going to be defined by the clients that you can get and the work that you can do. And in our early years, we did everything. 
my very first call when we started the business and day one, we looked around and said, okay, we're, we're in business. What do we do? Said, well, I'm going to call Mary Pat Bonner and see if there's any work that, that she can give us. And you'll, you'll laugh because here you're implicated, Nathaniel, but our largest contract when we got started was doing database cleanup within the NGP fan system. Why does that not shock me? Because <laughs> I remember her practice of wanting to like acquire lists and put them all together. So that was one of the early projects we did. All three of us went and taught a course on investing in social change at a private high school in Los Angeles that has a sort of two-week winter session where students can take electives. It was a great course. It was a lot of fun, a pretty small gig, especially to have all three of us, all three of us there. Sounds like it maybe made you put some thoughts together though. It's true. It, it's true. Um, we even taught Hebrew school at one point as, as part of our, our early gig. So look, the work at the start was anyone who was interested in bringing on our services. And what we learned was that we had to follow those paths. We had to do really good work. We had to prove ourselves. All of our work has come through word of mouth and relationships. And I think that's about just doing really good work over time. That's sort of how we built the business. We started with three of us. There's now, I think, 46 of us. The dream to have a philanthropic advisory business as part of what we do is there now. The relationships that I developed in fundraising did not immediately translate into everyone wanting to hire us. But over time, we really built up that side of the work and I think demonstrated that I think we had a lot to offer donors um, to help them get clarity about what they were aspiring to, how to structure their philanthropy and how to be effective beyond just the, the money that they were giving. So is the business model for that, is it like a retainer type of thing? What's the relationship between you and the donor that enables you to be paid? Yeah, for philanthropic advisory work, it tends to be ongoing work. Those are very personal, deep, sticky relationships. We do work from time to time for larger philanthropic institutions. That's project-based work, helping with a strategic plan and impact evaluation, helping provide capacity building support to their grantees. But the individuals and families and family foundations that we work with, those are long-term clients, long-term relationships. On the nonprofit side, a lot of the work is project-based. We do a lot of strategic planning, leadership coaching, impact evaluation. That tends to be shorter-term work, still very relationship-based. One of my other takeaways in all of this is everything is, is about relationships and true in fundraising. It's true in, in business. It's true in, in life in many respects as well. But those projects are, are not long-term in the same way as, as the philanthropic relationships are. So what's an ideal client for you? I think the ideal client for us is someone who has a lot of autonomy over their giving. That doesn't necessarily mean that they're the only decision maker but they are at least operating within a structure where they have significant influence over what they're able to do with their philanthropic resources. 
they're someone who is looking to do something more or different than they have been doing. Oftentimes when clients come to us, it's because they have had an event in their lives where they have many more resources to put out into the world, or they are tired of giving in a reactive, non-strategic manner, and they want to plan around how to give more effectively. We want someone who is, who's really thinking about what they want to do in the world with their philanthropic resources and looking to create impact. And there are lots and lots of valid theories of change, areas of focus. And our job is really to help funders kind of marry meaning with strategy. The giving that they're doing has to meet an aspiration, a need, a sort of psychic purpose for them, or they won't stay committed to it. And it's got to meet a real need in the world, and it has to do so with an approach that makes sense. And that's where the, the sort of art of philanthropy comes in. And the last piece, just in terms of our ideal client, is someone who's willing to listen, to think, to rethink what they're doing. In other words, to be open, uh, to be open to different possibilities, to be open to change, to be open to advice, not because we think our advice is, is always going to be right. And in fact, we're also open and always learning. We tend to, to enjoy working with, with folks who don't have very rigid theories of change about how to use their philanthropic resources to create change in the world. One thing you didn't mention in Ideal Client is what's the size of their resources that they might apply? I would assume that that's a factor. Actually, less than you would think. I mean, we have clients who are giving um, anywhere from mid six figures a year to philanthropy to many millions of dollars. I enjoy working with them all. But in some ways, I actually think there's real value in philanthropy to constraint. When you have a budget that you have to work within, and sometimes we've worked with donors who really have relatively little to give away compared to many people in philanthropy. And sometimes because of that constraint, they do the best philanthropy. They think the hardest about how to have leverage, where to give, how to give in ways that is really going to create outsized impact. They also tend to be people who want to roll up their sleeves and figure out beyond the dollar, how do they actually you know, use their non-financial resources, their relationships, their position in life, to make a difference. And I, I think that's really valuable in philanthropy, actually. So we don't have a particular target for how much money someone's giving away. How many donors are working with you approximately? Uh, we have a couple of dozen clients at any given time who are in the kinds of relationships that we mentioned. As I noted in, in my introduction, I serve as executive director of a group called the Democracy Funders Network, which has a, a couple hundred people in the community. They are not paid clients in nearly the same way, but they are people who we're in a learning relationship with around democracy. They're people who are coming to us in part to help create connections to other funders in the space, to help them connect with practitioners in the space, to help them learn about the issues, the organizations, to put it in historical and global context. Our relationships with donors are much more extensive than the client relationships alone. As I'm learning a little bit about your practice, it seems like 
there's sort of the donor side of that, which is what we've been talking about and goes out to the Democracy Funders Network. And then there's the other side, the side which is receiving the funding, which it sounds like you also provide some services to and do some matchmaking between the one side and the other. Is that right? We don't do a lot of that. It happens sometimes naturally. We don't do fundraising, but we do like to make connections between donors and organizations when we think there is a good fit. An organization definitely does not need to be a client of ours in order for that to be the case, nor does a donor for that matter. Is that what the ethical issues were are mostly around that you alluded to earlier, or is it something different? Yeah, I think there's all sorts of conflicts of interest that can come into play in this field. I mean, when we started as philanthropic advisors, I think this is much less common now. But there was a, a long period of time where one of the main ways in which philanthropic advisors were paid was as a commission of assets under management, meaning they got paid a percentage of what the donor was giving away, which never really made sense to me. Commissions are really frowned upon on the fundraising side, even though there they actually make a lot more sense to me. And I understand that donors don't like the idea that a percentage of their giving just goes to a fundraiser, but the incentives are aligned there. The incentives aren't necessarily aligned when you are a donor advisor getting a, a percentage of the amount of money that a donor is giving away. So we were really clear that we didn't want that to be the way in which we were paid. Another kind of conflict of interest can come into play when you have a donor who's a client and you have an organization who's a client and the organization wants to talk to the donor. And, you know, it's not that that never happens in our circumstance, but we approach it with openness, especially on the donor side. But we're also very clear with our nonprofit clients that coming to work with us on the nonprofit side does not give you access to the donors that we work with. Those two sort of sets of services and lines of work are just really distinct within our business. What's interesting is the places where we do tend to have kind of closer connections between the nonprofits that we work with and the donors that we work with are almost always at the request of the donors. They actually want us to be helping the organizations that they are involved in, that they care about, where they see that we could be providing value to the organization, not just to them. And those are the places where we'll do that, but we approach it with a lot of caution and a lot of openness about the potential, not just conflicts of interest, we manage those quite well, but the potential areas of, of conflict. Uh, you know, when you learn from working with an organization about some of its internal challenges, if you're also working with a donor who's supporting that organization, what's your obligation to raise those issues with them? And so those are the kinds of things that we tend to navigate very, very carefully. And without bright lines, I think it, it requires nuance, but also just a lot of care and caution. To what degree is the focus of the firm around democracy issues? Yeah, it's a good question. Democracy for us is just one piece of the work. We are generalists as a sort of overall matter. We are not particular about the issues that our funders or our clients for that, our nonprofit clients are, are working on for that matter. There are a couple of areas, democracy is one, where we have tended to develop a concentration of work. 
that has almost always happened organically. There are periods of time where we've done a lot of work in education. We currently have a whole set of work in the Jewish community. But democracy is the place where I personally spend the large majority of my time. It is also the case that even some of the donors who I advise on democracy issues, I'm advising on other issues, on climate, on Jewish community, on the arts, on mental health. We're not particular about those areas, in part because I think the most important thing in philanthropy is actually for donors to get clarity about what they care about and what what change they are trying to have in the world. And our job is to help them get there and to help them develop strategies to address those challenges or meet those opportunities uh, without a sort of particular view on exactly how change has to happen on any one of those issues. Even within democracy, where, as I said, I spend the large majority of my time I think there are dozens of valid approaches, focus areas, theories of change that one can have. There isn't one strategy for saving democracy that I think everyone needs to get behind. When I'm helping advise a donor in that area or any other, I'm listening to what they care about, their views of the world, their ways of operating, their deepest values, their vision for the future. Those are the things that then help you advise folks sort of where to land within an issue area. I read an article in Inside Philanthropy that you co-wrote with Rachel Kleinfeld right before the election, at least it came out then. And in that, you guys offered some suggestions about what philanthropy should do in this area. Why did you put out that article and what were you saying in it? Yeah. So the article was based on a a report that I um, really encourage folks to read uh, that was written by Rachel, who's a senior fellow at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. And her report was called Five Strategies to Support U.S. Democracy. I think she was doing something really important in that piece, which is why I wanted to help amplify it in Inside Philanthropy with a focus on what donors could be doing in this moment. The first is that there's lots of different areas within democracy work that funders are paying attention to and putting money into, but there is nothing more than voter engagement in an election year. I mean, even though that work is sort of chronically underfunded, it is also the best funded area in the democracy space. And again, just to be clear, that is in election years. I I would not make that case on an ongoing basis. And that's okay. And it's really, really important work. And I do think in 2022 and in 2020, you know, it really arguably saved American democracy. But I also think that if we only fund and focus on two-year election cycles, From the standpoint of revitalizing American democracy, we will never get out of the crisis that we are in. And I do think we're in a crisis. And so part of the the point of that piece was to say this is necessary, but not sufficient work. We have to understand that the drivers that led to democratic decline in the United States and frankly around the world don't go addressed when we focus on election cycles. And we have to have longer term 
funding strategies. We also, and this was really key for me, we need to understand that democracy is a permeable issue, meaning there are lots of different sort of component parts to it, but also things that influence its ability to thrive. So for instance, Rachel wrote a lot in the paper, and we echoed this in the Inside Philanthropy piece about the crisis of masculinity, that men, particularly in rural communities and low-income communities, are having a real crisis of confidence about their role in society. That's, that is a very hard thing for folks to wrap their heads around in, in this moment, but it's also not something that you would necessarily look at and say that's a democracy challenge. But I think it very much is. Um, it feeds a lot of the economic, the cultural, the racial drivers that are hurting the state of American democracy right now. So that that was, for me, the other reason that I really wanted to lift up Rachel's piece was to kind of widen the aperture of how we think about democracy issues, to get us thinking longer term, but also with a wider lens about the kinds of investments that philanthropy needed to be making to revitalize liberal democracy over the long term. So I think that begins to really get to what you think via that relationship and that article about what is needed. But tell me more. What is your personal take on what is the crisis right now and what are the most important things to invest in to pull ourselves out of that? I don't think there's one way of understanding the crisis or one way of describing how we got here. And I think that we need to understand that whatever we're facing here has its domestic implications, but is also part of a, a broader global trend. I mean, we've been tracking, and by we, I really mean, you know, global scholars of democracy, of which I am not one, you know, have been tracking a, a decline in democracy around the world since I think the mid-aughts, or at least the late aughts. It has just been the case that you know, for the many years in which democracy was on the march around the world, there was a reversal that had begun to happen that hit the United States before 2016, but in a very, very stark way in 2016. There are cultural drivers, there are economic drivers. Clearly, what is happening to post-industrial parts of, of this country that have had a real economic hit shapes the way that people think about the value of the political system in which they're living and operating. Growing social isolation, which was a problem before COVID and now is an extreme problem, has led to, in the sort of bowling alone kind of way, it's, it's led to the fracturing of relationships, of civic trust, of interpersonal trust. And I think that is a very, very difficult thing in a democratic system. I think that there are structural elements to our, our system here that, you know, for all the wisdom of the Constitution, are actually in some ways outmoded when you look around the world at, at other democracies and the ways in which they organize themselves, for instance, with multi-party systems. Some of our systems here have, have just become ossified. But at the end of the day, when I look at the current moment and the, the challenge that I think we're facing is, I think all of that and many other factors, the decline in civic education, the decline in local journalism, 
I think all of it has led everything to get filtered through a kind of polarized national political lens that, you know, in some very real ways in a two-party system raises the stakes to a degree that you have people who are willing to vote for their side of the political spectrum, regardless of how it acts related to democracy. And it's a very easy thing for me to sort of say as somebody who comes from the political left, all through the Trump years, I could look out at the Republican Party and at conservatives and say, well, you have to break away from the party. You have to break away from your movement because it has become an anti-democratic, small-d democratic movement. It's in a liberal movement now. I think that's true. I, I, I do. But also, I think there are liberal elements on the left as well. They're of a different kind, but they have real manifestations and, and potential to grow. And I have to look out at the political system and say, well, what would I do? What will I do? What do I do when my side of the aisle starts to violate core democratic norms, values, and institutions in service of ideas and policies that I care about? What happens if a Biden administration declares a climate emergency and invokes the same kind of emergency powers that uh, you know, Donald Trump was attempting to do during his administration. That is really challenging. It, it is where we are that I think polarization has led to the ability of partisans and not even the most committed partisans, sometimes soft partisans, to stick with their side no matter what their side does when it comes to core democratic norms, values, and institutions. And that's just not tenable for a democracy. And so there's lots of things, because I think this is a multi-causal problem, I think there are lots of different valid solutions to getting at it, but that's more or less the way I see the state of affairs at the moment. So if that's the diagnosis in general or part of it, what's the prescription? Yeah, well, again, there are many solutions and many prescriptions. I mean, I think we need structural reform. I think we need greater civic education. I think we need to rebuild trust in government. We need to build a government that deserves that trust, which includes making it more effective and, and modernizing it in a host of ways. I think we need society-wide interventions that build social cohesion. We need people of different races, different religions, different political backgrounds to still see themselves as part of certainly their local communities, but also part of a national political community. That's a really hard thing to do in a country as big and diverse as the United States, but we still are a nation and we have to make decisions as a nation. And so we need sufficient cohesion in order to do that. I think we need to expand voting rights. I think we need to expand civic engagement. We need to address the cultural drivers of authoritarianism, you know, the crisis of masculinity, isolation. We need just lots of, of different interventions. And I'm, I'm pretty skeptical, to be clear, of anyone who says we need this one thing over another. I was skeptical that if we just defeated Donald Trump, that the problem would go away. I'm skeptical that if we just get money out of politics or just pass redistricting reform or just pass ranked choice voting everywhere, that the problem will be solved. I think those are all inputs to a larger strategy that we need to be pursuing in a moment where we don't have clarity about 
what matters more than anything else. These things all matter, I think, for building a healthy democracy. So you have characterized a little bit of a lessening of your own partisanship over time. And is that a result of aligning yourself with donors who are not that partisan, who see the world from their, I don't know, privileged perch and are disdainful of partisan warfare? Or what do you think has occasioned that move for you? Yeah. So no, I don't think uh, I, I don't think that's the case. In fact, I think I've started to seek those people out because of of my own shift over the last number of years. The shift really began when I was working in progressive politics, and part of it was I was on a listserv for progressive activists and organizers and strategists, and I just remember very clearly one day someone on the listserv asked the question don't remember what it was about. But what I remember was they were questioning core orthodoxy. And it was done in a very respectful and inquisitive way. It was a genuine question. And I can't tell you the ways in which they got just piled on. You know, it made it really clear very quickly that that was not a space. And I don't think that that particular listserv was unique in this regard, that was not a space where one could ask open questions that went against the sort of common wisdom. Was that a particular incident that made the news? It was not. Okay. Because there've been a number of these, some of which came out and became public controversies. I've seen some of those over the years. This probably predated that. And I don't think it was a the, the listserv was still relatively small. It, it, I don't think it, it, it didn't become a, a big sort of public thing, but it was a very clear sort of lesson to me about what that was. And then I started to notice that in many of the kind of progressive spaces that I was in. Progressive intolerance sort of. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it was, um. it's, it, it was progressive intolerance, but to be clear, I actually don't think it's just about the progressive piece. I think it's ideological intolerance. I think when you're in an ideological community, part of the purpose of an ideological community is to get everybody seeing things the same way and to hold them in line. In some ways, it's understandable, but it is really not intellectually fulfilling. And I think it actually is strategically wrong. Meaning, I think when we get into a space where we have ideological blinders on, then we just miss a lot of things about the way the world works. Well, and also it is a political vulnerability often when you go out to a broader audience. Yes, no question. And so, you know, one of the things that that was another manifestation for me was I, I had sat in on so many conversations within the Democracy Alliance and other progressive and democratic spaces where I could just see, you know, these were conversations that were messy Folks, as I noted earlier, were unstrategic in a, a bunch of ways. And we would always talk about how the right was so much more disciplined, that they knew what they were doing and we had so much to learn. When I ultimately met some folks on the right, I remember once sitting with someone at a dinner and she turned to me and said, you people on the left are so organized. You're so disciplined. <laughs> right. We on the right are such a mess. 
And I thought we're missing some realities here about one another because we each have these narratives that the other side is organized and strategic and disciplined and we just need to be like them. And I just think that is, it's, it's just not the case. There's much more nuance in all of that. I guess the further you are from the sausage being made, the more the, it looks like the chef knows what they're doing. Yeah, I think that's fair. So interesting. I'm curious about how you see the donor advisory world around democracy as much as you're exposed to it. Like you compete with these other donor advisors to a certain extent for people, although it's a big world. Yeah, it's a it's a big world. There's, at least from my vantage point, very little competition, actually. But in any case, there are a lot of progressive donor advisors. Some of I've been talking to recently. I'm learning myself through them and, and through this interview about what they do. How do you see sort of that community operating? How well is it doing a job for the donors to get people giving to the right things, to bring more money into a space that needs more? Do you have a sense of how we're doing in that regard? in that thing that you're an important part of? That's very kind. I'd say a couple of things here. The first is there's a real nuance and subtlety that is required, I think, to be an effective donor advisor. And one of the things I mean by that is you can't bring your agenda to the table as the agenda when you're the advisor for a donor. And there are plenty of advisors who do that. But I think it's, it's not great practice. You need to be representing your donor. Now, that doesn't mean you represent their interests and never push back on bad practice. It, of course, doesn't mean that you don't work with them to shape what those interests are and bring your own expertise to the table. In some ways, one of the biggest challenges, and we all face this, of being a donor advisor is you have to have the modesty and humility to remember that you're not the donor. It's not your money. You are a representative. And whether you're talking to an organization that might be the recipient of funds or to other donor advisors or donors, you need to remember your role in in the system. That's one thing I would say. The second is, is another area where conflicts of interest, real or, or sort of perceived can be important to navigate. Many donor advisors come out of, and I'm, I'm not an exception here to be clear, you know, come out of a political background or a background in particular elements of work and the ideas and relationships that they bring from those backgrounds to the table shape what they know, what they recommend, who they talk to. And yeah, I just think we need to be very, very careful to ensure, again, that we aren't shaping the work in ways that just manifest what we know and think and believe from the work that we have been doing. I think this is especially important when it comes to democracy, because one of the biggest challenges I think we have at the moment in the democracy space is that the democracy space is essentially parts of the progressive movement layered on with a set of institutions that are either nominally nonpartisan or actively cross-ideological in their view. But all the organizations that have people behind them, 
are really progressive movement organizations that have an alignment with the democracy field. And a lot of the donors come from the left and the donor advisors come from the left. And so I think one of the real perils there is if we wind up, and this is one reason that I define my work as cross-ideological and have been really trying to differentiate this from progressive politics, if we don't see democracy as something different than our preferred political or policy outcomes, then we're just going to be having the same conversation on the left about progressive or democratic politics, and we're not going to influence democracy in a way that will reach a sufficient number of people in this country. That's another sort of set of things that I think we have to be careful about. The third thing that I'll just say is I love the donor advisors in this space. I really do. I think they're some of the most interesting, thoughtful, smart, strategic thinkers. Some of the work that they fund, that they bring to the table is just astounding. And, you know, some of the donor advisors are not just donor advisors. They're also leading work themselves. I mean, I'm, I'm an example, you know, in the sense of, of running the Democracy Funders Network. But there are other examples where donor advisors are really rolling up their sleeves. And, you know, I think in a moment at which we need all hands on deck, I love the group of people that I get to work with in this field. It's good to hear. Why did you start that Democracy Funders Network? And how well is that doing in terms of the goals that you set out for it to do? It's a great question. So before we started the Democracy Funders Network, actually, the first intervention that I had in the space was this group, Patriots and Pragmatists, that I referenced earlier. And, and PNP, as we call it, emerged really organically after the 2016 election. So one of my longtime clients, colleagues, and friends, Rachel Pritzker, who I met actually in the Democracy Alliance universe, back to one of your your earlier questions, you know, Rachel had been funding in climate and energy from the early Obama era through the 2016 election. And to be clear, she still does. But after 2016, we sat down and said, climate's a really big issue. But to advance it, we need a functional system. We need a functional government. We need a functional policymaking process. We need, frankly, a functional society. And if we're at a point where all of those things are under threat, we can't just keep our heads down on the particularities of how we think about climate. We had to do something. Rachel and I had both sort of been out of progressive and democratic politics for a number of years. We went back to a number of our colleagues in the space and we sat in on strategy conversations and went to convenings and talked to some of the smartest people in the field. And what we sort of routinely found at the time, and this was late 2016, early 2017, was that most of the folks at that moment in time, especially in individual philanthropy, were thinking about the Trump victory in pretty conventional political terms, which is to say it was a really hard loss and folks were concerned about the communities that would be under threat by a Trump administration But all of the questions they were asking were about how Democrats were going to win in 2018, 2020, and beyond. And I'm not kidding when I say that framework for the question 
was the same title of every conversation I'd ever been a part of in progressive politics, right? How are we going to win in X year, the next year beyond that, and then beyond that? And, and that matters, to be clear. It's not that I think it didn't. That, but That what, kind of surprises me because what I heard so much in the air at the time was concern about right-wing authoritarian playbook being run here. I think it took a couple of, it, it took a while for that to catch up, actually. I mean, at, at least in, in our experience, most of the conversations that we went to, even where there were people on the sidelines of those discussions. So we went to one convening in the democratic universe where there was one panel out of, say, 10 that was focused on the question of rising fascism. Even in those conversations where there were people on the sidelines who were expressing the same kind of interest that we were, which was to say, as important as all of those issues were, we were getting really activated around the threats to American democracy, not just that Donald Trump's election and administration would pose, but that his election was a manifestation of in the first place, right? The drivers that, that led to him achieving the presidency. And so we started to pull people from the sidelines of these conversations to say, can we actually talk about what's happening to American democracy? And one of the lessons that we heard from folks really early on was, yes, but if we're going to do that, it can't just be those of us on the left, right? We really need in this moment in which all of these voices on the right were starting to break from their party and their movement, you know, in part because they didn't see Donald Trump as a true conservative, and in part because they were concerned about what his election meant for American democracy. So if we're going to talk democracy and not democratic or progressive politics, they need to be part of the conversation, right? Democracy in a two-party system needs to be something that works for both sides of the political spectrum. And so the Patriots and Pragmatists group started really as, as a, a convening that Rachel and I pulled together in mid-2017 to make sense of the moment. From that point forward, people said, we don't know what it's going to take to get out of this period of democratic decline and, and a threat to norms, values, and institutions. But whatever it is, it's going to involve more of this kind of conversation across political lines, across disciplinary lines. And, you know, we had folks there in philanthropy and advocacy and activism. We had opinion influencers. We had organizational leaders. Come 2018, the number of funders who were at that point showing up in the space saying, okay, this seems really bad. We need to do something. Where do we go to meet the organizational leaders, the other funders to learn about the issues? They kept getting pointed our way. And we, at that point, really valued Patriots and Pragmatists as a, a network that wasn't just for funders, actually, that was genuinely for a range of people. But we felt like there needed to be a space that was distinct from progressive and democratic politics, that was focused on democracy issues, that was cross-ideological in nature, that took a big picture view of the challenges, where we could actually focus first and foremost on learning. So we're a learning and action community, but the learning piece is really, really key. When you have an issue as complex as this, you have to do a good bit of learning, not necessarily before you take any action, but before you get too rigid in your thinking and your analysis of what's happening, that's the sort of origin of the Democracy Funders Network. And I think it's going quite well in the sense that, you know, unfortunately, 
lots of donors, individuals, family foundations, institutional foundations, philanthropic advisors have come to the conclusion over the last couple of years that whether they were long-term political donors who saw the dysfunction in the political system or funders investing in a range of issue areas, that nothing that they cared about was going to be spared by the decline of American democracy. And so lots of, of people have been activated in, in many different ways on this issue. Way back a couple of years ago, there was a kind of a hit piece on patriots and pragmatists, if I remember, aimed at Bill Crystal, more or less. Do you remember that? It was like in time. I think if it suggested that it was kind of a secretive group of elites, who, which is like not the prescription that they thought for democracy. Is there any validity to that take on things? It's a funny question. Is there validity to the take on it? So I think there's validity to the take that it is an elite group. What we mean by elite, of course, is not that we're better than others, but just in the sort of social science understanding of the term, which is to say people who are in positions of influence within society. And of course, there's lots of different types of elites and many elites in American society right now who love to rag on elites, even though they are elites themselves, Tucker Carlson. Josh Hawley. Josh Hawley. It's true that we made a choice to say we want to build a network of people who come from very different backgrounds, whose interventions in the democracy space will look very different, right? If you're writing a column or going on TV or running an organization or funding with your philanthropic resources, but where the ability of that group ultimately in lots of organic ways that we don't direct or control, but just by virtue of building relationships among those people by challenging their thinking about the democracy space, et cetera, that they will go out and do things in the world. It is true that, you know, that the people in the network are elite in the sense that that they have that kind of, of ability and influence. And we think that's that's important. And also, of course, like any network that wants to, in some respect, have influence on the world. We also, of course, think about people and we think about organizations that have constituencies and how to ensure that we are learning from them, engaging with them, that they're part of the conversations. I I think the sort of critique, and I don't remember the timepiece too specifically, but this sort of idea of a a secret of cabal, and this is the wrong thing that we need in this moment, I think actually misses something really critical, which is that if you look at a lot of the scholarship, and I'm seeing more and more of this these days, whether it's Daniel Zblad and, and Stephen Levitsky's book, How Democracies Die, or a recent paper by Erica Chenoweth, whether it is one or another kind of left-leaning organization in the democracy space it's trying to figure out how we get out of this sort of moment of authoritarian threat the thing that everyone will tell you is you need a broad coalition ultimately you probably need that in a political sense but even in a civil society sense we need a broad coalition or maybe more realistically broad coalitions and those broad coalitions have to go across constituencies that are not used to working together, that have been distrustful of one another, 
that see the world in very different ways. And in my experience, the only way that you can actually make that so is to provide spaces where those people can get to know one another. I don't want this to sound too hokey, but they need opportunities actually away from the cameras, away from the stage, to actually just talk openly with one another, to wrestle with ideas together, to build relationships. I think in some ways that is the key. I mean, if you read the Zblad and Levitsky book, when they get to their solutions chapter, their primary argument is you need coalitions of people who disagree with one another, who are enemies in certain respects, because coalitions of the like-minded can move policy. They can't fix democracy. You need actually big, broad coalitions that span these differences. So I, I see patriots and pragmatists just as providing a really kind of key space for those kinds of relationships to get developed in service of that broader coalition. I definitely come from the got to have a broad coalition mindset. That's why even on this podcast, I've tried to make sure that I'm interviewing people from the Sanders left all the way through the third way and the never Trump Republicans that helped us fend off a reelection and helped us win midterms or not lose midterms too badly. I get that. What's the distinction? Did, did, is Patriots and Pragmatists a precursor? Is it uh, for the Democracy Funders Network? Is it a separate thing that led to this other idea? What's the relationship there? Yeah, I mean, there, there are two projects that exist alongside one another. There's no sort of formal partnership or relationship between them other than to say that the ethos of Patriots and Pragmatists really informed the ethos of the Democracy Funders Network, which is to say it's cross-ideological, big-picture view of the challenges, and a real learning mentality, and a real relationship-building mentality. I think actually in philanthropy more broadly, one of the things that I have found philanthropy under-indexes for the most is the importance and power of relationships. We talk a lot, funders and philanthropic advisors, about wanting organizations to collaborate and to build strong partnerships with one another, but we don't actually understand quite often that you need relationships to do that. And then when it comes to our, our own engagement with other funders, we, I think, have many fewer philanthropic partnerships in the space than we could otherwise, because people don't take the time to get to know one another and to get to understand the ways in which they think about the issues, where there are commonalities in motivation and vision and where there are differences. So I think that relationship building piece is, is really core in Patriots and Pragmatists, as I said, but also within the Democracy Funders Network. We want people ultimately to act in concert in some way with one another. We need them to get to know one another first. It's a sort of simple proposition, but I think a really important one. Did you hear about this effort called Roadmap for American Democracy? Deirdre Schiefling was part of that, they were, the idea was to raise a billion dollars for democracy. What happened there from your perspective? Because it didn't seem like it got off the ground. I think it did get off the ground in some really fundamental respects. I can't speak to what the sort of ultimate aspiration was and where they landed in that regard. You know, the, the thing that I think was really important about the roadmap was it was putting forward for donors 
a range of organizations and their sort of funding needs at the very moment in which donors were trying to figure out where do they put their resources to, you know, in this context, not impact election outcomes, but to impact the integrity of the election or the ability of, part of, of people to participate in it, et cetera. My sense is that it was very effective at getting that information out to donors. What sort of people did with it from there, I'm not sure what the aspiration going forward is. But I think it's a manifestation of a really good desire in philanthropy that I also think is really complicated, which is to make sense of a very chaotic field with lots of organizations, lots of, of needs, lots of asks, you know, going from organizations to donors. But I think there's a real service that the roadmap was playing and that other organizations in the space play in, in helping donors kind of better understand the lay of the land, the needs of the field. I think it is also true, though, that it is really hard to just provide the roadmap for American democracy and just say, here's the set of organizations and we should just fund these, in part because even I think the roadmap had, um, you know, it had its areas that it was focused on. But as I said, I think there's lots of areas involved in revitalizing democracy, you know, that go beyond sort of election year uh, kinds of investments. So I don't say that as a critique of the roadmap, but I do see it as the kind of thing that that the space has to reckon with is we we do need efforts to help funders understand the landscape better. And we need to understand that it is still going to be messy and it is still going to be larger than the way any of us probably within our institutions would would sort of define the work. I've seen a bunch of people, and I've only, I'm sure I've only seen a fraction of this, who are working on different ways to organize donors around these kind of needs of late. What I'm thinking of is there's like a donor organizer hub. That's an idea. There's champion.us, which is Phil Radford trying to make a platform for donor advisory work. There's a lot of these different networks, some of which have been around for a while, the way to wins. And I keep discovering them. And I would think I would know a lot of them by now, but it's a big country. Outside of the stuff that you're working on, what else have you seen out there that you think is a promising innovation in terms of moving money to the right things to protect the democracy? I, I don't know that I would single out anything in particular. In a lot of respects, I think the proliferation of the kinds of efforts that you just described, and this the same is true when it comes to pooled funds in the space as well, I think it's a manifestation of interest and need. I look out at a lot of the networks in the space, and I think they're meeting the needs of particular donors and donor advisors who, you know, are trying to figure out how to engage in this kind of work. And I think to the extent that those needs are met within particular networks, I think that's good and okay. I probably vacillate on this point at times, but when I look out at the probably more than three dozen intermediary organizations in the democracy space, even more when you sort of factor in progressive politics, 
On the one hand, I can look and say that's very chaotic. It's too many things. It can be dizzying. In fact, the number one question that we get from donors in the space is help me make sense of this field. And they mean that now both about the organizations and about the intermediaries through which they can get involved. But I think it is a manifestation of civil society. Civil society is messy. It's chaotic. We're a big country. There's, you know, there's never going to be one network that meets everyone's needs. And so I think it's good. The thing that I think we need is it is fine to have all of these different networks, but we need more spaces where they're actually in strategic conversation with one another. Um, And it's a very interesting thing to get to that point because, of course, those networks themselves are aggregating individual donors who have the same sort of need, right? To not just be operating in their own silos, but to be in sort of strategic conversation with one another. But now there's so many donors and so many intermediary organizations in the space that we just need to make sure that those efforts are also in strategic conversation. They can wind up with different theories of change. They can wind up with different approaches. But, but to actually be in strategic conversation with one another, I think, is, is the best way that I can sort of reconcile the reality of this moment. There is no donor. There is no donor advisor. There is no network that gets to say, no, we're the thing. Uh, we're the one. You come to us. You know, it's a multipolar universe. The way in which one operates strategically in such a universe is to provide more opportunities for conversation, strategic conversation, and and ultimately collaboration. How do you fit then into that whole model billionaires who kind of have their own operations, the Schmidt Futures, the Reed Hoffmans with Dimitri and, and his team, and, and people like that who are operating at a, you know, a nine-figure scale Yeah, I mean, I think whether they're operating individually or trying to operate in concert with other donors, even the the very significant donors of the kinds that you just mentioned, I don't think any of them are trying to necessarily go it alone, right? They are very strategic in many respects, and that includes wanting to be in strategic relationship with other funders. We need spaces where we can all be or many of us can be in conversation with one another, not because I think I'm going to, you know, necessarily influence the way that, that Dimitri sees the problem, to use that example, but because where he and I see things similarly, it's really useful to understand. Where we see them differently, it's really useful to understand. And I think that is just true across the field. We need to be in the kinds of conversations that enable us to understand who's doing what, how people view the problem, that give us a chance to challenge our own thinking, of course, sometimes challenge others' thinking, and not expect then that we're going to walk away from those conversations and all do the same thing. And I think that's okay. Look, if I could design the democracy space uh, of my dreams, would there be a more centralized command and control operation where you know, even with a a sort of broad strategy, everyone could operate in concert. Yeah, maybe. But I don't think that's realistic. Where I really spend a lot of my time thinking about is how do we bring people together for strategic conversation? If you were going to stack up the pro-democracy funders against the funders who end up 
on the other side of a lot of these efforts, the Peter Thiels of the world who were uh, funding election deniers for Senate. How do you think we look if these are two armies on the battlefield? There's two responses to that. When it comes to the money, I think we're better positioned. And the reason that I think we're better positioned is I don't actually think there are that many donors who are actively interested in supporting authoritarianism. Maybe Peter Thiel is an exception there, although, and people who know him would characterize it a little bit differently than that. The money that is backing a Republican party that is led by an authoritarian that, you know, has embraced a lot of illiberal um, approaches they're just Republican donors. I, I mean, I don't know how to say it any differently than I said it earlier, which is it's not necessarily that they're choosing authoritarianism over democracy as an active choice. It's that this is their party. The My Pillow guy, you don't think he's. My point isn't that there are no people there. It's that. So if I were just to take Peter Thiel, the My Pillow guy, and I don't know, five or six other donors and stack it up against all of the democracy donors and then the democrat then the democratic donors you know beyond that I, I think financially it stacks up quite well i think the challenge and this is the second point which is that um when we think about the effectiveness of the work or of the coalition it is a real challenge actually to have a democracy movement that is layered on top of a progressive movement, because there are lots of ways in which the aspirations align, but there are also lots of ways in which they don't. And I think that causes some challenges. I mean, if we were just to think about the coherence of the army, I don't think it's entirely coherent. And I don't think it's been, I don't think we've been challenged yet in quite the ways that we could be. Well, I mean, I, I've made this point to a number of guests, and I don't think it's uh, probably controversial or that smart, but it's basically like in a two-party system, in the course of normal politics, you're going to switch back and forth between who's governing because you know, economics and other world events are going to drive voters to try the other party when things aren't going well. And, and when you have a party as a Republican party right now, which is afflicted by a virus. Some of them are trying to fight it off. A lot of them are along for the ride or have become educated to not see it or to just look at what they see as the bad things about the other party. You know, we all understand the, the situation. It's essentially impossible in this kind of system to not face their governance from time to time, like we are in the house right now, but very possibly they get the Senate back and, and possibly the presidency in two years. And then we have to contend with, depending on who's running it and depending on how they operate, but frighteningly, we have to contend with their moves to fix the system with them in power and do illiberal things. So, I, I mean, I think what you're getting at, this difference between supporting one party and supporting a democracy movement is a critical lens with which to think about this, but it's very hard to, to pull apart. 
right? Isn't it? No, I, I agree. I mean, this this is in some ways the the challenge in this particular moment with uh, with the distinction that I think is real between democracy and and politics. If you assume on the one hand that both parties are going to be in power from time to time, then it's not tenable for the American democratic system to have one of those parties be in a liberal anti-democracy, anti-system party, because when they're in power, they will try to change the rules of the game in their favor. And of course, that's one of the main things that folks in this space were so concerned about last year was that you would have election deniers take over the machinery of elections and really kind of fundamentally and maybe somewhat inexorably change the system in their favor. If you think that is the case, one of the imperatives becomes to really do everything you can to change that party's behavior. I think that's right. And and yet almost everyone I've talked to who is a Republican, a former Republican, or sits outside of that party is in a state of despair. Maybe a less so since the midterm, a little less so since Trump's star has waned a bit, at least temporarily. We'll see what happens when he comes out swinging against DeSantis and how the electorate responds and so on. But what is the point of leverage? Who are the people that have the wherewithal to, to fix that? The one way to think about this is to think about the way that you create policy change, which is to say, take an issue that is not currently being debated in Congress. Think about gun violence prevention. If you had asked uh, pretty much anyone in the know up until last summer whether there was any chance of federal gun violence legislation anytime soon, they would have said no. It's just not going to happen. So much work over the last number of years has been focused on the state level. It's been focused on non-policy interventions, et cetera. And then all of a sudden, something happens and you have a policy window that opens. And so what's the argument when it comes to investment in sort of federal policy work on gun violence prevention? Is it that you don't do the work because it seems so unlikely to have impact sometime soon? Or is it that you have to keep doing it because you can't predict when that window of opportunity is going to open? I think the same is true when it comes to the Republican Party. I think the despair is real and correct. And I think it is naive to think that the party is magically going to change anytime soon. And at some point, it will probably change. And you need folks there or around, or interested, or engaged, or thinking about when that moment happens, what the play is to help that party become a sort of normal functioning political party in a democratic system. That's one way to think about it. But the second way is this, well, how do you make it happen? I think the answer is sustained long-term defeat, electoral defeat. Which is pretty aligned with the whole idea of fighting the political fight. It is. And my argument is not that you don't need to fight the political fight, but I do think how you fight the political fight matters. And so this is the point I'll make here, which is you can't 
you can't create sustained political defeat on a 51 with a 5149 coalition. I mean, a 5149 coalition is basically what you just described. Guaranteed, you're going to flip back and forth between the parties, probably about as frequently as, you know, as, as power has over the last 10 to 15 years. If you're a, a small D Democratic, Democratic actor who's engaged in politics, or you are big D Democratic or, or progressive political strategist, I think what you want from a democracy standpoint, which should probably align with the Democratic Party's view as well, is you need a party, um, you need a coalition that's, you know, more of a 60-40, you know, kind of coalition. It's so interesting because that ties into like the core arguments that are going on in the Democratic Party, which often have to do with orthodoxy and, you know, we have enough people to be a progressive dominant coalition versus the more pragmatic um, group that looks at a bigger tent as a more successful way to govern. Yeah. And listen, because I'm looking at this question from a democracy lens and I can look at it from a a non-political lens as well, as I was saying earlier about the role of patriots and pragmatists and, and beyond, I think what's true in politics is also true in civic life. You need a big, broad coalition. That is just a key element to getting the, um, you know, to getting out of this mess, how you get there, you know, the other things that go along with it. There are lots of, of other elements, but, but you need that to the extent then that in a political or electoral sense that takes you to some of those core fights within, within the party, I guess my argument would be, I think those fights matter, not just for the future of the Democratic Party. I think they matter for the future of American democracy. I have this feeling that you and I could talk for a very long time profitably, but I think I may have overextended my welcome a bit. Is there a question I should have asked you that I didn't? Not off the top of my head. Well, I, I, I do appreciate your time. Um, anything else you want to say about your work or what you're up to right now? The only thing that I would say is one of the conversations that I uh, am having with donors now and I'm, I'm, you know, prepared to continue having is an assessment of where we are after the sort of surprising victories in the, the midterm elections. And, you know, here I'm, I'm really referring to the defeat of election deniers who are running to control our elections. Also, the good news around the passage of the Electoral Count Act reform. Um, you know, there are lots of folks who are looking out and saying, well, maybe we have turned the tide a bit. I would caution against. And I would too. What I said to people when uh, we were all despairing is the same thing that I'm saying to people now, which is we have two things in our favor when it comes to pro-democracy forces. The first is that we have historical knowledge about how democracies declined. We know the signs and the signals. We know what happened in ancient Rome. We know what happened in Germany. We've watched challenges in, in countries around the world, even in the modern era. And on the one hand, it's really frightening, actually, to look at those trend lines, see them happening here, and then say, wow, this does not look good. But having the knowledge about how this happens, I think, gives us so much more of a leg up than pro-democracy forces had in the past when they just didn't realize in all cases and in, in the midst of democratic decline what, what was happening or what was required. 
So that's one thing is, is just, you know, having the knowledge, I think, is really key. The second is, and this is one of the ways in which I've certainly bucked myself up through some of the most difficult moments, is those of us in philanthropy and civil society, we have the ability to act in a way that no one else anywhere in the world at any point in history has had. As independent actors with resources, um, with the freedom to act in a whole variety of ways, we can actually roll up our sleeves and we can do things at a scale and in a manner that no one else could at uh, any other point in, in history. And I do think, and, and this is where I would close, you know, I do think 2020, 2022, not just the midterms, but also, as I said, the Electoral Count Act reform, the congressional modernization work, the January 6th committee, uh, and many things, not just at the federal level. I think that's a manifestation of not just civil society, certainly, but but of civil society and philanthropy playing the role that we are poised to play to help save democracy. And it's good to have some wins under our belts, not so we then walk away from the fight, you know, feeling like we have turned the corner per se, but that we're, we're not just facing an endlessly uphill battle instead of historical forces that we have no ability to influence. I'm glad we have that sector focused on it. To, to the degree that it is. The only thing that concerns me is that when the power of the state is harnessed by someone who's determined to undermine democracy, they operate at a very big scale with a lot of power. And you can just get an inkling of that from DeSantis in Florida about like what the kind of moves that someone can make to sabotage civil society. And so I think we better be ready to contend with that. I hope we don't have to frontally. We have just published a, a paper through the Democracy Funders Network called What Happens If It Happens Here? U.S. Philanthropy, Civil Society, and the Authoritarian Threat, because we really wanted to understand not just what authoritarianism would mean for American society, but civil society is often in the crosshairs, and philanthropy is often in the crosshairs, and as I said, nowhere else has had a philanthropic sector as robust as we have in the U.S. And so we really wanted to sort of wrestle a bit with what would we expect here? That paper is, is on, on the democracyfundersnetwork.org website now. Very cool. Well, thank you for your time. That was Mike Berkowitz. Mike is at thirdplateau.com. This is Nathaniel G. Perlman with the Great Battlefield Podcast. You can find us at greatbattlefield.com or by searching for Great Battlefield in places where podcasts are found. The Great Battlefield is now part of the Democracy Group Podcast Network. Visit democracygroup.org to learn more about other podcasts that cover democracy and civic engagement. You can also help me by leaving comments and good ratings on Apple Podcasts or elsewhere and by sending me suggestions for great guests to nperlman at gmail.com.